Hello, my name is John Hamel. Welcome to the Association of Domestic Violence Intervention Programs ongoing series of podcasts on Intimate Partner Violence, or IPV. The Association of Domestic Violence Intervention Programs, more commonly known by its acronym ADVIP, is an international organization of batterer intervention programs and mental health professionals who provide treatment for perpetrators of IPV, as well as researchers with an expertise in the field. The purpose of ADVIP is to advance evidence-based practice and lower rates of intimate partner violence in our communities. In this podcast series, various experts offer their thoughts, research findings, and clinical experience on topics related to the causes, characteristics, consequences, assessment, and treatment of IPV. Podcast number one and additional selected podcasts are available for free to everyone. Others are free only to ADVIP members. To join ADVIP, go to www.domesticviolenceintervention.net and click on the Join ADVIP link on our homepage. Again, go to www.domesticviolenceintervention.net. Thank you for listening. Everyone, this is John Hamel of the Association of Domestic Violence Intervention Programs, also known as ADVIP. Uh, today, I'm very pleased to uh, interview uh, one of the pioneers in the field of domestic violence treatment, Bob Geffner. He's president and founder of the uh, nonprofit International Resource Training and Direct Services Center, known as the Family Violence and Sexual Assault Institute. He is a distinguished professor of psychology at Alliant International University in San Diego, and he's the editor of four professional peer-reviewed journals. Uh, he has a diplomat in uh, clinical neuropsychology from the American Board of Professional Neuropsychology. He's board certified in couple and family psychology from the American Board of Professional Psychology. A clinician who has lectured and trained extensively uh, for 35 years on the subjects of child abuse, domestic violence, trauma, forensic psychology, child custody, uh, expert witness, human aggression, sexual assault and abuse. Uh, long-term effects of adverse childhood experiences, the effects of abuse and victimization on the brain, uh, neurobiology of trauma and aggression, and numerous other topics. He's written, edited, co-authored, or co-edited over 100 published professional books, chapters, journal articles, and technical reports on a variety of topic areas. Uh, Dr. Geffner is a found, founding member and past president of the American Psychological Association Division of Trauma Psychology and is founding co-chair, immediate past president of the National Partnership and Interper Interpersonal Violence Across the Lifespan, which we'll be talking about in a minute. He is past president of the American Academy of Couple and Family Psychology. He's been a researcher, trainer, practitioner, and consultant for over 40 years. So Bob, welcome to the ADVIP podcast. Thank you. Uh, so I'm very interested in um, national partnership to end interpersonal violence across the lifespan. It's a huge endeavor that you pioneered uh, a few years ago. Um, been following up on it. I haven't been participating in the meetings uh, per se, but I've been keeping up with the progress and read the uh, some of your reports. I'm very impressed. So let's start by talking about uh, NPEIV. How did it come about and uh, what are some of its goals and, ob uh, and objectives and activities? Well, it uh, came about uh, a little over 10 years ago. 
uh, it was actually an outgrowth of the American Psychological Association when I was uh, incoming president of the trauma psychology division. Uh, Jackie White uh, was the incoming president of the Society of Women in Psychology, both for APA. And we knew of each other, but that was the first time we actually met. And at lunch, we were talking about some of the issues in domestic violence and uh, violence against women and children on her end and uh, sexual assault. And both of us were commenting that we'd like to see some major changes in policies and priorities nationally, especially while we were still alive. Uh, and that we didn't really see in all these years a real focus at the national level or state level where child abuse and domestic violence and sexual assault and elder abuse were really being prioritized with funding or policies. And the National um, Council Against Domestic Violence, those people? Well, there were organizations that did some of this, but nothing that was really changing our whole mm -hmm. national priority to end uh, these areas. In other words, don't have major things that was going to say, you know, in the next 20 years, we're going to end child abuse, we're going to end domestic violence or, or things like that. And the funding and the uh, research being devoted to these topics, even though more people are affected by these areas than anything else, just wasn't there. The budgets, even for the Violence Against Women office, is really small compared to everything else. Okay. So we got together with the president incoming of APA and decided to hold a forum uh, to talk about uh, ending interpersonal violence. In other words, there are different organizations that you just pointed out uh, to deal with uh, sexual assault or child abuse or domestic violence, but there wasn't anything that focused on interpersonal violence, all of these across the lifespan. Uh, and the dynamics overlap. Uh, these all relate to each other. So uh, we ended up seeing uh, if we could have a, a forum, a think tank. And the first time we set it up, uh, a couple hundred people showed up. Uh, and over those next year, year and a half, uh, there was uh, a definite interest in forming a group. We didn't want to form another organization. So it became a partnership uh, of organizations, of individuals, of coalitions who had the mission and vision of really reducing and ending interpersonal violence across the lifespan. And Paul Fink, who was a past president of the American Psychiatric Association and at the time president of the Leadership Council Against Interpersonal Violence and Child Abuse, uh, actually came up with the name uh, and then we came up with a logo and we started yes. setting think tanks uh, and we've had one a year ever since that usually occurs now the day before the International Summit on Violence, Abuse and Trauma in San Diego and we get anywhere from 70 to 125 people representing 150 to 200 organizations, agencies, uh, coalitions, and set the agenda for the year. There are five action teams. I mean, we spent the first five years really developing the infrastructure and finding out why did not other national movements not 
really be successful. I mean, we've had several movements, but they've sort of died down uh, and or disappeared. So we set up to really avoid the mistakes of others. We developed an infrastructure that we were inclusive. Anybody could join. Uh, the membership fees per year were inexpensive, basically $40 uh, and or $10 for students or retired people. We d- did not have any exclusionary criteria. The only criteria was that you believed in the mission and you set your personal agenda aside for the partnership in order to really look at changing priorities and really changing the way our country deals with these areas. Well, let me ask you, Bob, what, what are, tell me about some of the key players uh, that have been part of this uh, so far and, and what, what's been your role in all this? What, what have you done what, specifically uh, in organizing this? Well, Jack and I were founding co-chairs. So for the first uh, nine years or so, we basically were the co-chairs and we then had action teams. At that time, we had seven. We had a, So our job was really to organize uh, and structure it, which we did. Uh, and then we set up as part of the infrastructure elections. So a couple of years ago, we had our first real serious elections. So there's an executive committee. And then Jackie rotated off the executive committee two years ago. And then I continued as uh, chair. And then uh, I rotated off this year. And Viola Von Eden, uh, who is the past president of the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children, rotated in. So I am no longer on the executive committee for the first time. Uh, but they have an executive committee. We're multi and interdisciplinary uh, from different degrees, different licenses, different professions. To So my job really was to get it organized, get the structure set, set the agendas, develop the action teams, and now it's sustainable on its own. So what about law enforcement? Um, What about uh, policymakers, teachers, attorneys? uh, Are any of these groups involved as well as mental health professionals? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yes, we definitely have advocates, law enforcement. There isn't any group that isn't involved. Uh, From parents to teachers to faculty members to researchers to practitioners to policymakers. And that's why the five action teams, people join an action team uh, from policy to research to training and mentoring to publicity and, you know, all those things. And then they have an agenda and we have tasks and activities. So what are some of your goals and activities then? Uh, Can you be a little bit more specific about that? Sure. There's a violence research digest, for example, and for one of the action teams that uh, summarizes key research in a jargon-free brief uh, uh, format that is uh, published as an e-bulletin that is free uh, on the website of the partnership, which is www.npeiv.org and uh, uh, that digest then helps practitioners and others understand you know some key research that has important applications to practice so it's translating research to practice that's one another one uh, another group is working on setting up a national network uh, that could be accessible via electronic uh, and websites for those who are trained in trauma-informed care and can actually 
intervene and treat victims of trauma. That's another task. Right. A national plan was set up on what do we actually have to do. There's 22 specific recommendations on how to change policies and practices to have an impact. Another policy group actually develops policies, and there are a rapid response team. So we've sent out policy statements and press releases probably about half a dozen in the last few months with things that are going on nationally. Like the one that just came out was dealing with the the proposed change in definitions of domestic violence and sexual assault by the Trump administration and how devastating that would be. Uh, So those are just some examples of very specific tasks. But you can go to the website and it'll show you the different action teams and the tasks and the agendas. Well, as you know, Bob, uh, translating research into practice, let alone policy, is always difficult. Uh, Recently, uh, I was part of a team of, I think there were 16 of us co-authors who did a large research project. review paper on the effectiveness of current programs in domestic violence. And we had some policy proposals, but uh, which is fine, except that um, contacting and having establish, establishing a relationship with actual policymakers who have the ears um, of uh, legislatures and, and so forth, this, we found that to be a, a quite a task. So with your organization, how much success have you had having a contact with politicians and policymakers uh, around the country, uh, are they listening? Are they, are they trying to implement some, some uh, legislation uh, to reflect your recommendations? Yes, but keep in mind, it's not just us. I mean, the people who make up us are people who head up other organizations. Right. Some are much better at doing that. So for example, Victor Veith, who is now involved in the Zero Abuse Project, uh, has been meeting regularly, and he's one of our past executive committee members, uh, with legislators uh, to deal with uh, a change in national policies to look at making sure everybody is trained in really dealing with child abuse and adverse childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. So for me personally, no, I don't have those contacts, but we have had uh, actual congressional briefings uh, and we've been working with other organizations that we've partnered on congressional briefings. Uh, unfortunately, the current administration is not very favorable toward many of these things. So uh, we are working, though, uh, we meaning you know, people involved with us, uh, to deal with a variety of bipartisan uh, issues to deal with uh, violence, abuse, uh, elder abuse, domestic violence. And some people are also changing things at the state level. For example, uh, one of the groups that's part of our coalition just worked and got passed in New York uh, a uh, uh, Child Sexual Abuse Victims Act that uh, changes the statute of limitations and uh, and adjusts a whole bunch of things that to deal with helping higher sexual assault victims come forward and be able to you know, hold uh, offenders accountable. So those are just a couple of examples. Okay. And uh, if you guys are interested, like what you were saying, you're welcome to uh, join and to suggest some of these uh, things that you guys came up with uh, and, you know, build that into the think tank. The next think tank will actually be uh, September 5, I believe, in San Diego 
But the action teams themselves meet either monthly or every other month via Zoom conference calls. Uh, each one sets their own. And those should be noted on the website as well. So people can join into those action teams and help plan what the different activities are. All right. Well, there are a number of co-authors on this research paper I was telling you about that are members of ADVIP. And I can contact them and ask if any of them have any interest in joining one of these action teams. Um, let's move on, Bob, and I uh, wanted to sure. ask you uh, some broader questions about uh, intimate partner violence in particular, because as you know, ADVIP is focused on um, working with perpetrators of, of domestic violence, although we obviously the people in our organization often deal with other populations as well, but the primary um, Mem the membership of AVIB is, consists of either researchers focused on domestic violence specifically or practitioners uh, who are focused on domestic violence and primarily working with perpetrators and, um, and finding effective strategies, you know, evidence-based treatment for right. working with these perpetrators, male and female. So let me start by asking uh, your perspective on some of the ways that uh, domestic violence perpetrators are dealt with. Uh, what are your views on that? Tell me from your point of view, what do you think is working, what's not working, uh, uh, and so forth? Uh, sure. Uh, well, I've been doing this from a variety of perspectives now, <clears throat> boy, since probably 1980. I think some of the things that are not working uh, is uh, we're still not uh, that far away from one size fits all, even though we know in the research and actually practice that that doesn't work. Most of your court-ordered uh, treatment programs basically are not designed to meet the uh, needs of individual perpetrators. Uh, they are whatever happens to be available in that particular community, uh, and the people who are attending them don't select them based on what we would consider important issues. So they select them on price, on location, on time, on all sorts of things that aren't relevant to actually changing attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors. We don't really assign virtually anywhere in this country people to intervention programs based on what their particular issues and needs are. And they vary, as we know from research. Uh, some are uh, basically continuing the types of behaviors that they grew up with. Uh, some have really strong needs for power and control for a variety of reasons. Some have their own trauma issues. Some have brain impairment from being hit or in, in accidents or head injuries or being victims of child abuse themselves. So there's all sorts of different reasons that uh, people end up becoming a domestic violence perpetrator. Some we end up finding out about early on. Some have been doing this for decades before they're caught or before they're held accountable. So one of the issues is we're not really doing intervention based mostly on what people need. As far as I know, Colorado has a, a three-tiered model for intervention where they assign uh, the dose of treatment, the amount of treatment to uh, court-ordered uh, defendants based on their history, 
So that's, I guess that would be one exception in Colorado. They, they, well, they, it's, uh, it's not an exception. It's an advance because that's, <laughs> that's one issue, right. but see time isn't a key issue either. And that's another real problem. Uh, many states like California or Colorado put some type of time limits, like a 26 week program or a 52 week program or 12 week program, or they don't put any, but the ones that put, uh, a time limit on it, that's not based on research. That's not based on how the person succeeded uh, or did they really change their attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors, which are the key. Uh, if it says 52 weeks and they've gone through 52 weeks, then they're graduated. Uh, and we've had some of my former students looking at research on repeat offenders uh, and finding out, you know, some of these people have gone through 52-week programs two and three times, and they're still offending. Uh, some don't need 52 weeks. So the key is not just time uh, and how long they've done it. It's really beefing up the assessment and intake to find out what are the real issues and how do we go about changing those attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors. So very few programs are really geared to that. There are research programs geared to that. But not in a large scale. We don't even have agreement on the type of treatment. Some are very power and control oriented. Some do deal with trauma. Some deal with a variety of other things. And the more comprehensive programs that deal with all these issues, the more successful. But that's not necessarily what works uh, all the time in all these states. It's not even clear in many of these states who is able to do the treatment? In fact, I'm talking about treatment. Some of the uh, states don't even refer to it as treatment. They talk about classes or education. And they right. may not yeah. even have a mental health clinician involved. It could be a former perpetrator or, or somebody who's worked with victims. Uh, so those things to me are problematic. Also, many states now have very strict restrictions on if you're court referred, it has to be, say, gender specific, or it has to be group, or it has to be, you know, something. Again, not supported by the research. Uh, some work well, some do not. And when you look at the research over the last couple of decades, they sort of zero themselves out because they're not based on needs. So you get some people who succeed uh, and do change their attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors, and they don't recidivate. But meanwhile, you have uh, higher amounts where they really haven't completely changed. There's still risk issues there, or they may not be physically uh, aggressive, but still psychologically abusive. So we've got, uh, unfortunately, a longer way to go. Uh, as you know, many states do not allow any type of couple or conjoint intervention. Right, and right. yet the research shows that uh, with a good assessment, this may be the most successful approach for certain uh, people who do not plan to separate or leave each other. So, But the laws and statutes and treatment programs haven't necessarily adjusted or changed. So those are, I think, some key issues. So uh, in my research... Bob, uh, with this team and my own individual research, it seems pretty evident 
at least to me, that um, some type of either formal motivational interviewing approach or something alike to motivational interviewing where clients are uh, feeling respected and feeling that their particular issues are being attended to, that seems to be, uh, there seems to be some consensus among scholars that this, this does work and it works across models. In other words, this, this can be implemented in a, any kind of Duluth or CBT format. What are your thoughts on that? Because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pretty convinced that this is one promising approach. Well, I don't think that's the end approach, but I agree. Uh, mo- motivational interviewing or acceptance and commitment therapy. I mean, virtually yeah. all yeah. these things with different names come down to solution-focused approach where they uh, are punitive. They are uh, really meant to engage the person. Uh, and in the programs we developed now, we also recommend that, especially at the beginning, these approaches be used to engage the person. And then when they begin to accept a little bit more responsibility, you can move into the various didactic programs, etc. I think uh, those that are punitive-based or only based on power and control don't show good success rates. Uh has to be more comprehensive. Uh, trauma is a key issue, uh, and we found that out in the research as well for at least the last 10 to 15 years, but 10 years in any case. But most programs really don't have a focus on trauma or even looking at uh, neuropsychological issues that show up in a percentage of these offenders. Uh, so you have to be able to modify your approach to deal with uh, with these different issues. Uh, the motivational interviewing or whatever technique you use, I think is going to be a key, but I don't think that's enough. Uh, in other words, that I think is the key to engaging people. And then you have to go to really dealing with skills, with trauma issues, family of origin issues, uh, behavioral issues, communication issues, assertiveness issues. All these things have a role. What I've been talking about recently uh, is is uh, using a combination of, uh, of scholarly empirical research and uh, and clinical knowledge. My 25 years of experience doing these groups tells me that, at least from my perspective, that the the, the one thing that that better intervention clients seem to value the most after feeling heard and 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 respected is learning ways of communicating with their partners. The men in particular feel overwhelmed by their partners. Although they're stereotyped as being controlling, they really don't feel it, that they're in control. They may be using controlling tactics to balance the sense that they're not in control. They, what they desperately need and, and benefit from, from my experience, is uh, learning practical strategies for communicating with their partners, communicating their needs. In California, if you look at the, uh, the state standards, um, Conflict resolution and communication skills are not at the top of the list uh, as, as uh, you know, what should be in a curriculum for better intervention programs. The top of the list would be uh, discussion of power and control, the impact of domestic violence on children, socialization, domestic violence dynamics, and that's all good. All those things should be focused on in a group curriculum, of course, but I'm just saying that um, that the policymakers seem to regard communication skills as something less important. Oh, I, and again, that's where sometimes ideology doesn't match 
research. They're all important, and that's why the intake assessment. Some people uh, have different areas that are more important to help them in changing their attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors. Expressing emotion, being able to uh, appropriately communicate, those are all keys. Uh, people do a lot of things to compensate for own insecurity feelings. Uh, so when you're talking about some of the perpetrators of domestic violence who are excessively using power and control uh, to compensate for their feelings of, as you said, not being in control or afraid that if they don't do this, their partner will reject them or leave them. So you have all sorts of different reasons uh, and issues going on uh, all have to be dealt with uh, in a way that meets their particular needs so that they do learn new techniques, that they change their attitudes, beliefs, and behavior. That's the mantra that I push all the time. You made a comment in there that I uh, want to come back to, though, because uh, I agree with it. Uh, you made a comment about clinicians or mental health practitioners. Keep in mind that you know more than half of the intervention programs in this country are not run uh, or facilitated by mental health clinicians or licensed mental health practice. Even in California, Southern California requires uh, a licensed mental health clinician. It could be a marriage and family therapist, a social worker, a psychologist, etc., cetera, uh, to be involved in the program. Northern California does not uh, in yeah. certain areas. And same thing around the country. Uh, and I would strongly disagree uh, that people who say you don't need that. We're talking about pretty serious issues. I mean, people who are aggressive and violent and abusive. And I want somebody in the program who is trained in mental health treatment and clinical techniques. Uh, it doesn't have to be everyone. You can have co-facilitators and others. But I want somebody in there who is trained. I, I do believe that self-help programs can be very helpful. I, I worked, I did some trainings at San Quentin Prison with inmates there who, who do a peer-led uh, domestic violence treatment program, and it, they seem to really buy into it. Um, if, if, if peer counselors were allowed, uh, in your view, under what conditions should they be allowed to run groups? If, well, I, in the programs we developed, I have no problem with them co-facilitating. My ideal situation is uh, at least one of them is a mental health professional, ideally a male-female team, but not required. But the least I would like is that they're supervised by a licensed mental health practitioner who is really, you know, having some direct involvement and in overseeing what's going on, that these people have been well-trained. Uh, but I see that there is a need for peer counselors, they can have a very positive impact. But I'd like to see more than that uh, in running programs. Um, Self-help groups, I have no problem with. In fact, I think they're really good from the standpoint of maintenance and continuation. Too many programs, when they end, they end. There's no follow-up. There's no continuity. That's one of the things we found in our research is that there is no continuity, no way to support and maintain the changes. And that's an important factor. So, uh, you know, 
continue on in peer uh, support groups after they've completed, I think is also very positive. Let me ask you another question, Bob. Let's move on here. Um, what do you think about the political climate in the U.S. and how that might be affecting uh, the disclosure reporting of domestic violence, uh, in particular psychological and emotional and sexual abuse? Uh, I think we're on the uh, regression cycle right now. Uh, when you have leaders of, uh, in high positions of authority and power who model inappropriate behaviors, uh, you send a real mixed message uh, to younger generations and to people. Uh, and I think that's what we have right now. Uh, it has become, unfortunately, uh, almost acceptable when you see it by leaders of our country who uh, treat women in ways as objects, uh, who are talking about uh, people who are different in negative ways and dividing up people where intimidation and bullying uh, is acceptable, uh, where, you know, winning is emphasized, not uh, cooperation or collaboration. That's a very negative precedent uh, for what work we're trying to do. I mean, we're trying to change attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors while people appear to be getting away with acting that way. Uh, and that, to me, has really set us back, especially when you're talking about, uh, say, school kids, say, middle school or high school, where we're really trying to eliminate bullying and harassment in schools, both sexual as well as physical and psychological. And yet you have the modeling at the upper ends of our government that utilize these and that continue to attempt to do this, not only uh, politically, but even, you know, with other countries, with binding up our country into, you know, people of different groups and categories. And if you're different, then there's something wrong with you. Uh, this is all leading to even more acceptable violence, oppression, prejudice. We see it played out every day in the news now. The violence is incredible. Uh, it's now acceptable uh, almost to be violent. And even though we say it isn't, all you have to do is look at what's going on. And that makes our work more difficult. Let me ask you a question about uh, the law that was proposed in the UK. I don't know if it was ever enacted, but some time ago I read about proposed legislation in the United Kingdom that would make uh, psychological aggression illegal. Not, not, not threats to kill someone, but just verbal abuse. Now, it sounds a little far-fetched, and I'm not sure what what came of it, but uh, I've heard I've heard some advocates at times from time to time suggest that um, chronic verbal abuse should be made illegal. What are your thoughts on that, Bob? It seems that there's would be some controversy around that. Well, depending on how we define illegal, I mean, domestic violence, if you want, is uh, a criminal act, along with obviously behavioral, psychological, and everything else. Uh, so, by illegal, if we meant uh, or mean it's part of domestic violence. I agree. Now, uh, in many of the states, it does list psychological abuse, uh, and that would put uh, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, you know, under the same category. 
as a part of domestic violence. And I definitely agree this is a serious issue and needs to be included. Uh, and chronic verbal abuse can have even more devastating effects than occasional physical assault uh, in how it uh, impacts and traumatizes the victim and or children growing up in those homes. And we do not pay enough attention to that. Uh, I testify in court cases regularly, especially family court, and it has gotten more difficult to get people to understand, judges and others, the danger of psychological abuse, uh, even though we know from a variety of research studies over several years how it even traumatizes the brain and changes our brain functioning. And so it does need to be there. Uh, in California and of all places, Louisiana, for example, uh, new recent court decisions at the appellate level uh, have now reinforced that psychological abuse is indeed still domestic violence and needs to be uh, considered in that capacity, at least in family court cases, which is where a lot of this is playing out. So uh, I would definitely agree. I, I don't like to use the word illegal. I would just say it is, uh, you know, part of domestic violence and domestic violence is not acceptable. In my experience, um, I think there's a lot of confusion around what's psychological abuse because, as you know, there are different categories, right? So technically, if a couple are tend to have loud arguments and they yell at each other and from time to time uh, they swear at each other, call each other names, and if from time to time they try to boss each other around, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're batterers or that... Or that it, what they're doing is the same as, let's say, the husband uh, going out of his way to keep his wife from going anywhere, always checking up on her, or the wife um, making actual threats to his life. Or So there's different, would you agree, Bob, there are different levels of what we call psychological abuse, everything from bossing someone around and yelling to uh, keeping them basically prisoners in the home and monitoring all their activities? Well, let me answer that in a couple of ways. Uh, yes, there's a continuum uh, and in all types of abusive behaviors. Uh, not that it's successful, but there is a continuum. Now, I would not define what you're talking about as psychological abuse. Uh, and in fact, one of the issues in the field uh, that's been going on for decades is definitional. Uh, and Murray Strauss uh, for years, you know, talked about mutual uh, abuse. Right. And uh, in a special issue we did devoted to him when I was editor of the Journal of Family Violence uh, that we published two years ago, I wrote a, uh, an introductory article uh, that uh, I had really discussed for over a year with uh, people on a variety of continuing of attitudes and beliefs in the field. And we got a consensus finally. And Murray Strauss agreed too before he died. And and I wrote up that, uh, there the distinction between aggressive behavior, uh, mutual behavior, and abuse. And I think that's the key that we still get in trouble with. Uh, we know from research that uh, couples uh, often uh, can be aggressive toward each other in ways that are either psychological, physical, uh, sexual, et cetera. Uh, 
in the example you gave of arguing with each other, swearing at each other, cursing at each other, etc., cetera, uh, that comes under the category of psychological aggression. Not appropriate, but it occurs in many, many couple relationships. That's different from abuse. Uh, and to say psychological abuse really does mean power and control. It means somebody is exerting power and control over the other person, meeting their needs and not the other person, and causing trauma, uh, causing hurt, causing all sorts of reactions in the other person. So that's not a mutual situation. Uh, that's one person getting their needs met at the expense of others and can be done psychologically, like name-calling, denigrating on a chronic daily basis to physical uh, uh, assault. Uh, so that distinction, I think, is really important. So A, that we are on the same page in our definitions, our research, our practice, and we deal with each differently. There's a whole different approach that I would take with people using your example who argue with each other, uh, can't resolve conflicts together, uh, attempt to boss each other at different times, uh, and the effect that has on them versus uh, a situation where one person is putting the other down, the other person is intimidated, afraid, and traumatized. Uh, so that's a whole different approach. And I don't think we do enough in either the research or the practice field to clarify these differences, uh, both of which can run on a continuum uh, from, you know, frequency, duration, severity. Uh, that's the complexity of uh, domestic violence that I don't think is dealt with adequately in our policies, in our intervention programs, or our prevention programs. I think that um, there are a lot of um, mutually abusive couples. In other words, couples where both partners are trying to control the other, uh, what Jacobson and Gottman called Bonnie and Clyde couples. Uh, I, see, I see a lot of that. Uh, how much there is, it depends on, as we, you know, as we, as you said, uh, on definitions. Uh, in my programs, in my batter intervention programs, I do see a lot of clients who are engaging in psychological aggression versus abuse. A lot of psychological aggression and a lot of uh, the aggression seems to be emotive. It seems to be expressive, right? So what is one way of defining abuse to, uh, would, would that in, entail uh, looking at the intention, the motive yeah. of the perpetrator? In other words, if a perpetrator's motives are instrumental as opposed to just expressing uh, frustration and anger, would that be one way of distinguishing between aggression and abuse? Well, up until one point there, when you said expressing frustration and I forgot what you said besides that. Anger. <laughs> anger. Uh, up to that point, yes, it could be. But expressing and dealing with frustration and anger, if you're doing it in abusive ways, then it's still abuse. Going back to the definition I gave, uh, I would disagree. Uh, the research does not show that people are really at a high level of mutually abusive behaviors. Mutually aggressive, yes. And I think that, again, is the distinction. Uh, the research has been pretty clear when you use that research. Uh, definition 
is that unfortunately males tend to be much more abusive than females. Doesn't mean females are not abusive, but it's like probably a three to one ratio. But mutually aggressive in the examples you gave uh, and not being able to express frustration appropriately uh, uh, and both getting angry at each other. Yes, that occurs. But if you go back to one person getting their needs met where the other person is being intimidated, that's a key difference. Uh, We don't see a lot of these mutual situations where one person is really being traumatized. You know, they both are arguing with each other in the example you gave, and I would agree. And that's a different treatment program and not appropriate again. I mean, aggression is not and should not be acceptable. Uh, And so, but to distinguish those, I think, is a real key. So I would not say that we have a lot of mutually abusive relationships. I think we have a lot of mutually aggressive relationships and that's what Murray finally agreed to also toward the end before he died. And that's why that special issue is geared to looking at what goes on in dyads and how do we distinguish uh, between those that are abusive and those that are aggressive and those that are appropriate. All right. Well, uh, I've, I've done a lot of research uh, myself and looked into the literature on motivation. And the, the research suggests that, that actually women are just as likely to report that control is uh, is a motivation as men would report. So women report, self-report, uh, need to dominate and control as much as men do. But I think where I, what, I, what I would completely agree with you, Bob, would be in terms of the impact that these behaviors have because women are express more trauma. They experience more trauma and fear than men. So when we're defining abuse, when we're looking at the effects of domestic violence on men and women, clearly women are more impacted. So it sounds like your definition includes the impact as well as the motive. Am I correct? It does. But uh, again, I would disagree with motivation uh, being the same between men and women. Uh, The research does not show that uh, when you look at large scale studies uh, and when you look at uh, the motivation to have some control, yes, but uh, uh, the intent is a key. The be- if you look just at the behaviors themselves, that doesn't necessarily define abuse versus aggression because it could be either one. But when the intent is to uh, exhibit power and control and dominance over the other person, not just that I want some control over what's going on, but I want to control the other person. That's different. Uh, and that's where you get into abuse and that we do not see equivalent levels uh, between men and women. And it play an impact is a separate issue. That also is true. The impact, especially uh, uh, from a danger standpoint or injury standpoint has always been consistent where you have, probably almost a seven to eight to one ratio of uh, the impact being dangerous for women versus men. But uh, that's a piece of the puzzle, but not the entire puzzle either. Well, uh, on, on this, we can sort of agree to disagree. And this is why we need more research to clarify some of these things. There's a spectrum uh, of um, points of view with respect to gender issues that I think where we can be and still be effective in terms of our policies and interventions without necessarily agreeing on every 
on everything. But uh, now your your insights as into psychological abuse and the difference between abuse and aggression is a good one. In particular, if we're going to uh, push for uh, alternative treatments, for example, couples counseling, because I think most of us agree that wouldn't be appropriate when there is actual abuse, right? We only want to uh, use couples counseling when um, when what's going on is really more psychological aggression. Okay, so we're going to disagree again, but uh, in a different way. Okay. <laughs> no, some of the treatment programs, ours as well as others, Sandy Stiff and others, uh, if the uh, couples are not in a lethal situation, in other words, you're not dealing with uh, life-threatening, you're not dealing with serious threats, you're uh, able to communicate at least at some level, not at an extreme level of fear or trauma in the victim, mm-hmm. Then, and, and they're planning to stay together. And in, in, in the treatment programs we develop, we have a whole list of pre-treatment criteria but surprisingly, I think even you would uh, would be surprised the number of people who even meet the definition of domestic violence uh, who are able to actually change attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors in a conjoint or couples approach. Uh, what was interesting when we first started doing this uh, back in the 80s, I mean, we ran into all sorts of opposition, uh, but the program was very successful. Uh, and once we actually listed, you know, what our uh, criteria was, uh, a, and a, a victim of domestic violence has veto power. But the number of people who can benefit uh, turns out to be higher than people estimate and people think. Uh, uh, it is interesting uh, because we already know a majority of these people are going to stay together, even if we don't recommend it. So. Uh, are they appropriate for alternative treatment programs? You know, perhaps uh, a motivational interviewing for them at the beginning and then some type of conjoint treatment. But over the years now, from us and others that have been done now going on, geez, 30 years, we find that this is actually a very good alternative for a good number of couples where they're in domestic violence situations. It also depends on how early they are, how dangerous they are. You don't put people who are dangerous in this. Uh, they said the facilitator and the victim have veto power. Right. And the programs that have been done around the country, in all these years, there's never been a lethal incident. But we do have, unfortunately, lethal incidents that we hear about all the time in general. So uh, the amount that could be used is probably going to be higher than people estimate if we actually allow it and do a good job of assessment and intake and screening. Well, at this point, Bob, I wanted to tell our our listeners that um, in a previous podcast, I did interview Sandra Stith. She was telling me that she's there now. She and her team are now beginning to think that couples counseling could be uh, used with abusive couples. Uh, But I think in the past, it was assumed that, only low-level, you know, violence involving aggression rather than abuse would be appropriate. But I, I, I agree with you. I also want to tell our listeners that um, given that Bob t- touched on uh, trauma-informed treatment several times in this podcast, you, uh, you listeners may want to tune in to a previous podcast that we did a few months ago with uh, Casey Taft, 
who's yeah. a national expert on trauma-informed care for veterans. So let's conclude our podcast with Bob by, um, I just want to ask you, Bob, uh, sure. to tell the, the listeners, how can they get involved with a national partnership? And then how can they find out more about the, uh, the Domestic Violence Conference in San Diego? All right. So first, uh, the national partnership has its own website uh, and the Institute on Violence, Abuse and Trauma, which is now the DBA of the Family Violence and Sexual Assault Institute, acts as the uh, uh, coordinator, uh, fiscal agent for it, is www.npeiv.org. That website has the information on the think tanks, the action teams, how to get involved, all sorts of things. Not expensive, as I mentioned. IVAT has its website, www.ivat centers, all one word. Uh, Institute on Violence, Abuse, Trauma, IVATCenters.org. The International uh, Summit on Violence, Abuse, and Trauma occurs in September, and all for submissions, actually, uh, is still on until tomorrow. Uh, uh, And there's also an international summit on preventing, assessing, and treatment uh, of uh, violence, abuse, and trauma in Hawaii in April that we put on. Each brings in about a thousand people. They're both uh, interdisciplinary. They deal with all these topic areas, not just domestic violence, but child abuse and sexual assault and the interplay among all these types of interpersonal violence. Uh, and they can always contact me as well. But all that information are on either of those uh, websites. That would be the best way to start seeing how people can get involved in the different things that we're trying to do to change the way we deal with all forms of interpersonal violence. Bob, thank you so much for taking your time to uh, do this podcast. I know how busy you are. I want to thank you again, and um, I'll be in touch. Hello, my name is John Hamel. Welcome to the Association of Domestic Violence Intervention Programs ongoing series of podcasts on Intimate Partner Violence, or IPV. The Association of Domestic Violence Intervention Programs, more commonly known by its acronym ADVIP, is an international organization of better intervention programs and mental health professionals who provide treatment for perpetrators of IPV, as well as researchers with an expertise in the field. The purpose of ADVIP is to advance evidence-based practice and lower rates of intimate partner violence in our communities. In this podcast series, Various experts offer their thoughts, research findings, and clinical experience on topics related to the causes, characteristics, consequences, assessment, and treatment of IPV. Podcast number one and additional selected podcasts are available for free to everyone. Others are free only to ADVIP members. To join ADVIP, go to www.domesticviolenceintervention.net and click on the Join ADVIP link on our homepage. Again, go to www.domesticviolenceintervention.net. Thank you for listening. With you regarding uh, how to access uh, this podcast. Excellent. My pleasure. Glad to help. Thank you, John. Take care. Bye-bye.